Eleanor, welcome to the Inqua Podcast. Thank you. So excited to be here. For everybody else who's listening, let's just start with a little bit of your background, where you grew up, what do you like about movies, what did you love to watch, and maybe a little about your education. Absolutely. So I grew up in the Chicago area, and I felt very fortunate in that my parents both appreciated the power of media. And for my dad, he doesn't love content, but, and he'll never rewatch anything. But my mom is a historian and her whole family is historian. So we would watch movies and she would provide the context starting from when we were really little. And one area that both my mom and dad really agreed on was musicals. So we watched so many musicals growing up. It was something that my dad's family had really liked. So it was part of his childhood. And my mom loves music. And so many musicals are weirdly, especially the musicals of the 40s and 50s, are situated in different historical moments. So then she would describe those. So we watched tons of that. And kind of for my siblings and me, we our one television show when we were growing up was really full house. And in retrospect, I think it was because it was in that hour between kind of getting home from school and my dad getting home from work. So it was how my mom could have some time. I think she just wasn't worried about Full House. So that was how we got really into it. As far as musical goes, I mean, like when you're talking about old old musicals, what was your dad's favorite? What was your mom's favorite? Was it like Oklahoma all the time? What was Ugh. What were the family favorites? From my mom, it would definitely be Fiddler on the Roof. She is total Irish Catholic, and her wedding song was like Sunrise, Sunset. Uh, <laughs> A jewel <laughs> part. Yeah, no, absolutely. Her, her favorite thing on the planet. And then my dad was more into weirdly stuff like Carousel, which is dark. I don't know if you've ever seen Carousel. And Oklahoma, anything Rodgers and Hammerstein, Sound of Music. We really, really watched a ton of that growing up. And as far as like Full House goes, did your parents ever watch with you? Was it just no. you, the kids, learning all the lessons and being like, oh. No, they didn't watch with us. They didn't watch with us. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> I'm sure one time my mom watched it with us and then was like, oh, I'm not worried. And then it was ours. I mean, being in Chicago, did you guys love like John Hughes movies, any of that stuff? Was there anything like Chicago Pride that you were like, this is our movie? We really loved Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The other John Hughes movies didn't really matter to us. Actually, that's a lie. I'm thinking of Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club never really mattered to us. His other 80s teen movies didn't. We loved the Chris Columbus movies, especially Home Alone, because... Parts of it weren't in our immediate neighborhood, but it was close to where our cousins lived. And the director, Chris Columbus, lived kind of around the block from where we were. So it felt like local hero. We were connected to it. So that was important. What were some like important movies? So you guys watched Full House musicals. What were some important movies when you were growing up? Sound of Music was very important. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was very important. And then even when we got a little bit older, my family, again, really enjoyed a high school musical, and my little brother would be so angry if I was sharing stuff like that, but we weirdly also loved 
The Rock with Sean Connery. We loved a lot of Sean Connery. We did a lot of James Bond. It was funny because my parents were super OCD about kind of sex, drugs, violence in other ways. But if it was James Bond or Indiana Jones or, or Star Wars, like it didn't matter. So it was, I think in retrospect, they just wanted to watch what they wanted and they were uninterested in the contemporary, which to a degree I understand. It's what they enjoyed and what they were nostalgic for. And then why would you go see a new movie in 1997 that you didn't care about that felt somehow sexier than James Bond? Even though in retrospect, you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Those were not safe movies. So from all that time growing up and watching what you watched, what changed when you went to college? And You went to Notre Dame for a bachelor's. Yes. And... I didn't go in wanting to study what I ended up studying. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And you know, when you're 17, it's the whole idea of what you care about doesn't seem valid. Like there's always, you're trying for something else. So I went in undecided and spent my whole freshman year just taking a ton of classes and then ended up taking, studying the only things I've ever really cared about, which were history and film. And I loved studying film at Notre Dame, and I was really fortunate in that I found two professors who, three professors who were really excellent, and I think my degree, you have to take maybe 12 classes, and I took one class that wasn't taught by any of those three professors, <laughs> and like one of them I still keep in touch with. Was I writing her Christmas card last night? Yeah. Um <laughs> And they, the three of them, what I appreciated so much was learning to trust and believe that popular culture had value, had merit, and reflected concerns, anxieties, issues of greater importance. And that I thought was really valuable. And growing up in Chicago, it was always my interest in movies was a fun fact and a sidebar, but it didn't seem central to moving things forward. And especially when you're in your teens and early 20s, it what you believe in and progressivism becomes so central in many ways to who you are. And through them, I was able to connect what I cared about and what I was watching to issues that I deemed important. So that was, that was really fun. So I loved studying history and film, two separate majors, but I did a lot with them. And so I knew I wanted to return to film, if only because I loved my undergrad college professor so much that I was like, I too will become a film professor. So eventually I ended up in film graduate school and cinema studies, and that's what brought me out to LA. But that was a very different experience. And at the graduate level, at least when I entered, it seemed so granular and so disconnected from reality. Whereas what I had enjoyed about film education was connecting it to the lived world and lived experience. But then for the super higher education piece of it, it gets so esoteric and I didn't love that. So then I shifted a bit more into industry and connecting that way and then have left officially the film world professionally and got 
a business degree and work in healthcare. So now I'd like to think more strategically and as a fan, but I love following the industry at large. But it's almost easier for me to be a committed fan rather than an active participant. That, and it was also one of the reasons when I tried to do more industry-specific stuff, I realized you have to spend so much time doing things you hate in order to get to do what you want. And I realized I'm just not that patient. And I was like, I have no interest in this. And recognizing that a huge part of what keeps this going is the consumerism of the content and treating it seriously. So that's that's where I take value now. <laughs> you, you kept it as a love and less as a job and you're better. One hundred percent. So what do you what do you watch mostly these days? I mean, is there a kind of genre of TV? Are you watching everything? Uh, is there only certain movies? Do you watch all movies? I don't watch all that much television for Los Angeles, which I realize is different than saying that in different parts of the countries. I don't I don't really do reality television. I did Golden Bachelor, but that was only because people were doing it in watch parties and I like to be included. I mostly enjoy comedies that veer, I would say, foreign in terms of like British or Australian. I like that they're short seasons. I like that they're 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, Recently, I've really enjoyed Colin from Accounts, which is an Australian show that I think is available on Paramount+. And I also really like period pieces in different ways because I think there's a level of high drama, low stakes because you know what's in the past. And I think because I have a history background, there's the context to see how people play with historical figures, how they project contemporary values onto it. So I'm watching The Gilded Age right now, and I pretty much hate watching The Buccaneers on Apple Plus, which is really bad, but went too far down, and now I'll finish it. What's The Buccaneers about? Oh my gosh. It's theoretically based on an unfinished Edith Wharton novel, and it's about young American heiresses from New York in the late 1800s who marry English lords who have titles but no money. So it's almost the precursor to Downton Abbey, which is how Cora married her husband, Lord Grantham, and moved to Downton Abbey. Okay, so a little drama, a little pe- a lot of period pieces. I mean, especially with the history stuff, does it bother you if it's not completely historically accurate or would you rather they take leeway and tell a better story totally care if it's historically accurate because if nothing else there's follow-up and think pieces about it and it gets people more interested in the stories like i love the crown i've loved all seasons of the crown but that's also because i love the royal family and I would say I know more about British history than the average passive viewer. But each season, I find myself deep on Wikipedia, like simultaneous to the show, after the show. And I think that's interesting. And I know it's not just me. Um, speaking of historically set pieces or whatever else, we saw two movies we're going to talk about. And let's start with the first one. Let's talk about Salt. <laughs> 
Let me just ask you first. What did you feel about it being set in 2006? I thought that's hilarious. Um, I felt old. We are old. That's the difference, too, is only in the last couple months, I feel, have I come to terms with that. Because a writer I really like, and I've been following her work for a while, all of a sudden in her writing started to refer to herself as middle-aged. And she's like five years older than me. And I was like, wow, I too am almost middle-aged. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So it's it's more of a reframing. And at the same time, I'm so glad I'm not young across the board. Um, so glad. It's fascinating, but it's hilarious that it's in 2006. And I mean, Jacob Ellerty, I think is so good in everything. His better role was as Elvis and Pr- Priscilla. But you can tell that even Emerald Fennel just likes looking at him. The way that he's shot, the way that he's lit, it's great. I mean, the cinematography was amazing from start to finish. There's a scene with Barry, and you have to help me with the last name, Barry Kyogen. Mm-hmm. Do we know? Does anyone know? Okay, Kyogen. There's a shot with him like in this mirrored glass thing that was so pretty, and I was like, He's not a model Irishman. He's a farmer Irishman, and he looks amazing in this moment. Um, so she definitely has an eye for, yeah, beautifying everything. And Jacob Lordy doesn't even need it, to your point, but <laughs> still. I kind of despise this film. I'm not going to lie. Okay, so tell me why. I thought it was gratuitous. I think that it's a failed version of the 1968 film Teorema. I just don't think it's very good. And I hated watching it. I hated the experience of watching it. The one thing I can say in its favor is it was the best use of a diegetic song. Or was it non-diegetic? It's hard to tell. Uh, that I've seen in film where he nakedly dances across the house he's taken over using the song Murder on the Dance Floor. Thought it was perfect. I have not seen a song used that well in forever. And especially knowing what that song means in the UK, where it has like much greater resonance than it has in the United States. Loved it. That that scene, thank goodness, is at the end and it does elevate part of the movie for me, or else I think I would have left viscerally upset did you see in a pretty packed theater i did i went to a pre-screening in october yes so i've in a sense been waiting for other people to hate it for a long time um how was your screening were people pretty vocal Vocal. was it dead quiet very vocal yeah i mean i saw it last weekend with a friend and our screening, it was the most gasps and oh lords. And can you, what? What are they doing? It, it was like watching, you know, for those who love Marvel movies, when people talk, I was like, oh, this is the, the opposite side. We're all so uncomfortable. The uncomfortable laughs. Everyone was shifting. And to your point, it's pretty gross. We were loved. I never want to watch it again. No, <laughs> it's not a rewatchable movie. I think I was, I heard so much about the gross scenes. But they were a little less gross in my mind than what I'd already imagined up. I probably liked it more than some other people, just because I think the story had some fun elements here or there, but it's nothing I've like recommended a lot of people to go see. 
I don't know if you feel this way about stuff for your parents or if you've gotten to a stage. I am the total cultural point for my parents. I tell them what to watch. I tell them what to read. For the last decade, I've just been requesting books to their local library and emailing when it's time for them to pick them up. It's perfect. My dad has no idea that it's been almost a decade since he's read a book by a white man. It's perfect. (laughs) And And I've seen the subtle changes in him, which is really cool. But the same goes, they find some content on their own, I would say. They spend a lot more time on PBS than I do. But I feel like my parents have always at least in the last like 20 years, I've always gone to more things and checked more things out and always like been a little higher up on the scale than a lot of my friends' parents for indie movies. I found over the last five years, I've recommended less to them knowing how many things I've just like, you know, just absolutely loved. And they've been like, it's terrible. <laughs> we hated this movie. Okay. Let me just change what I recommend. Yeah. It's their, your own algorithm, the Tristan algorithm. Yeah, I was like, I have to be a little bit of a filter. Maybe don't see Saltburn. <laughs> That's been the first. Okay, I did a double feature. I went straight from Saltburn, got in the car, and drove down to go see Godzilla Minus One. And that was a total change of pace. And a weird night to watch both at once. But I don't know about you, I'm a huge Godzilla fan, so I already knew I was going to like it, but I loved it also loved Godzilla Minus One. And interestingly, carrying on from the past conversation, I immediately texted my dad and I was like, I think you would like this. And same with my cousin and my brother. I I really liked it. I really liked it. I love, I do love Godzilla. I love some of the older, kind of campier monster movies. Even the, this is where in the 90s where I'm like, oh, then Godzilla with Matthew Broderick is bad, but do I enjoy it? Yeah. In the same way that the Brendan Fraser mummies are excellent uh, in their own beautiful way. But this one I thought was so fascinating. It was the first Godzilla period piece, so I was obviously on board. And just I hadn't seen contemporary Japanese explorations of the post-war period. So much of when we think of Japanese cinema, it's a lot of stuff from the 1950s where it's not directly addressed. And even the original Godzilla film from 1954, it deals and grapples with post-war issues, but never directly. And this one I thought was fascinating because it's much more direct, right? We have the main character being a failed kamikaze pilot. We have the heroes being the collective Japanese veterans who are self-reliant and it's it's putting to task in many ways the Americans for dropping the bomb, which has always been the case. That was always the case in the first one too. But I really enjoyed it, and I was fortunate enough. I got to see it in Tokyo, so it was that was cool. Which is so <laughs> like it was very fun to see it to like walk over Tokyo all day and then see it destroyed at night. And it was fun just doing the Japanese cinema going experience. It was also cool. I saw it in Japanese with no subtitles and was really able to follow along. I went with a friend. We were talking about it after. And then when we got back to our hotel, we were looking at the Wikipedia and we're like, we did a great job. We got most things. (laughs) Uh, So that was... I didn't realize you had no subtitles, no dubbing, no nothing. You just went in 
Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, to your point, it was so well done visually. As While watching, I realized I wasn't reading subtitles most of the time. I, was, I mean, it was just so good. And there's a speech they give, and they're making the plan. Mm-hmm. I just love a good planning scene when it's done right. When it's bad, you're just like, this writer was bored. Um, but there's a planning scene in which they say, like, uh, you know, we don't need the government's help on this one. We already saw what they did during the war. We can handle this ourselves, which I love that, kind of like taking back this power of, like, it wasn't the emperor who did all the stuff or, like, whatever. It was all the people here. And then they're kind of saying, like, no more need for useless bloodshed and dying. We don't have to die to be honorable. It's honorable to live. And it was like, oh, my God. Like, for a thesis statement three-quarters way through the movie, it was well done. Yes. Yeah, and there was the redemptive arcs, there was sacrifice, and even on the visual level, seeing how Tokyo itself and the people who lived there, their lived experience from August 1945 to October 1945 to 1946, 1947, 1948, and that I thought was powerful and inspiring, and even thinking about watching it from a Japanese perspective, so to fall so far to lose so terribly and then to see the progress made in such a short time like realistically i think about that all the time nowadays like when we look at images of war zones and we hear stories from so many places that are currently in siege and we're like oh people are still living their lives and that for me felt very resonant weirdly while watching this movie that uh, stuck out to me the most but also, Godzilla looks great. <laughs> but it's a Godzilla movie that doesn't just show him the whole time. And I did love some of the online fights or discussions about it where people are like, yo, why is Godzilla woke? Why does it have a political purpose? It's like, it wait, always has had. every Godzilla movie ever. <laughs> yeah, every Godzilla movie has a political purpose. And it's that line that makes the monster attacks and how we're going to beat him the better part. That's really upsetting. This is sometimes where I'm glad I'm a bad internet person. That would make me furious that people say stuff like that. If you're going to watch a movie, maybe do like a little bit of research, you know, learn a little bit and about it. every movie is inherently political because it's reflecting some type of worldview. Needless to say, I'm glad that it's expanded to over 2,500 screens by this weekend and next. So I'm like, more Americans are going to see it. Yeah, it, everything is a moment of its time. And I think contextually, this one's also interesting, too, because I don't know if you saw the news, but Japan just now is letting in Oppenheimer to theaters. And that's because obviously Oppenheimer will resonate very differently with a Japanese audience, which takes into almost no account the suffering within Japan as a result of the Trinity test site. And you see elements of Oppenheimer's guilt and visions. And so that took months of negotiation. Obviously, in the States, Oppenheimer came out in July. So to think about the two happening almost simultaneously, where Japan gets Oppenheimer and the United States gets Godzilla post-war, like that's a cool counterpoint. And so this is where I hope that people are able to see some of the indictment of the United States because Godzilla would not exist as a creature without atomic energy being 
in the oceans outside of Japan. <laughs> oh boy. So let's just rent a little theater and do a double feature where we watch Oppenheimer and directly after we watch That would be a dream. I really hope some small independent theater across the country is doing that. I really hope that's the case. Now, are you watching Monarch too? I'm trying to. I'm falling behind. December is a really busy month. I tend to love Apple Plus content. I will say that is actually the streamer I use the most frequently. And I love the idea of a father-son playing each other or playing the same character, even though I don't historically like Wyatt Russell. But I like Kurt Russell, so I like to live a complicated existence. And I haven't spent a ton of time on it yet, but I'm hoping to. That's also one that I can see when the actual holidays hit and life gets a little bit slower really leaning into. Have you watched them? Yeah, so I got the pre-screen almost a month ago, and they gave me the first eight episodes. Are there only eight episodes? No, no, no. There's more, but they were uh, they weren't done making it. the. You know, they put them up as they're fully edited and stuff, um, or at least closer with all the CGI. So yeah, I watched through what will come out December twenty second. I want to say, mm. anyways, it's fantastic. And to your point, White Russell is so much better in this and more palatable than some of the things he's done recently. But no, it's funny to watch that because they show you the genesis of godzilla in the monster verse and it's funny to watch that version versus what toho shows and they're obvious like godzilla is america where monarch's like oops america just made it worse like okay (laughs) speaking of changing stories you saw napoleon i saw napoleon it's been a little bit of a a talk amongst people kind of divisive movie what did you think of napoleon it was a movie. I had almost no thoughts about it the second I left the theater. Didn't stick with you at all. No. What I will say is I really regret not waiting for the four-hour version that will eventually be on Apple Plus because there was too much disconnect between characters and storyline. I was able to follow, but again, I'm a huge history nerd. My in high school, we did such thorough studies of the French Revolution and the whole Napoleonic period that I was able to follow to the point where my high school history teacher was texting me about it and all of her issues with it. And so I was able to follow, but I do think a four-hour version might have been better. The only part I was truly, really impressed by was the large-scale fight scenes. And that is where Ridley Scott is so good. That felt like, it almost made me want to revisit the first part of Gladiator to to see what that difference would be between 20, 25 years almost, to see what the new technology, new film work can do. Because it was like, that looks great. It was so impressive. But other than that, whatever. I was going to say, yeah, it looked great. It almost reminded me of like Lord of the Rings size battles where it was clear We knew what was going on. It was action-packed. It was intense. I've been to a lot of different parties or gatherings where I've been talking to people about the movie, and people are angry about What are the anger bases? Some of them are a little cliche, like white men who have read multiple Napoleonic biographies being like, he's the greatest, most winning general of all time. I was like, maybe we don't have to like put them on pedestals all the time. 
others who are just like, he had no ego. How is this guy supposed to lead a country? He was so wormy. Ridley Scott is British. He hates Napoleon. The British hate the French for this. There is no way a British man's going to make this movie and totally glorify Napoleon. And so I know a lot of people were expecting a kind of like gladiator-style reverence for this really badass general. You get some of that, but you also get the insecure mama's boy with a wife 10-plus years his senior who's just always fawning for affection and hungry for a baby, and he's just kind of a little wimp at home. Well, it's also... You say that, and now I'm like, this is weird, too, because we want to look back at historical figures with a critical lens. And are people forgetting that we buy into this idea that Napoleon was super charismatic, but how many people actually interacted with him, even of his time and of his contemporaries? Because I think to our current era, with Biden as president, yeah, he seems like a nice guy, but have I ever actually interacted with him or seen him or anything? No, and they didn't even have constant social media and media attention anyway. So maybe France has sold us a very good story about how they were taken in by the greatest person of all time, whom everyone loved and was obsessed with. It's weird to me that people, it's weird to me that people get so angry. Like there's many things to get angry about, which is mostly the fact that in any period piece, no matter where they're from in the world, they will have British accents. Like that's it. Always. Yeah. Always. It's a little, it's frustrating. Yeah. It, I thought it was a little more Ridley Scott being, you know, putting his take on it with some of the current supposed to be charismatic people. I think that's, that's interesting. And I hadn't thought of that, but also, as I said, left the theater, didn't think about it again. Well, now that's everything we've seen. What are you excited to see? I mean, we're seeing poor things tonight. I heard you're doing a double feature though. I'm not doing a double feature. There was a time in which it was a possibility, but no. Uh, Where things I actually may hate. I was thinking about this yesterday because I don't really like your ghost. I did like the favorite, but that's also because I like most things that are royal in some element. So I may hate this, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I didn't love... Was it, It's the lobster, uh, Colin yes. Farrell. Yeah. Didn't love The Lobster. I loved The Favorite. I went in completely blind, and I think it was just so shocking. I was like, oh my god. So, similarly, I'm a little hesitant to say I'm going to love or hate poor things, but we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. We both have on our list to see Origin, Ava DuVernay's film, but you have a personal connection with something, right? Yes. So, a friend of mine has been working on the marketing campaign for it. So, been talking to her about how they've thought through bringing this to people because people don't really like to watch movies about racism so do they want to make it a single person's story i'm just fascinated to see how that plays out but also the movie is like an hour and 45 minutes and i'm at a point with understanding how my dollars work at play where I'm all about now, if a movie is between an hour and an hour and 45 minutes, like I will see it in theaters, if nothing else, because I want to show studios that I don't need two and a half hour movies for things that don't need to be two and a half hours. That's kind of why I want to see that. Support that change. It needs to be that way, especially with so many things being limited series. Or, yeah, put it on streaming for four hours long. It's about a journalist discovering and talking about racism, so I want to see how it gets played out. So I had read the book it's based off of, which I 
think came out at the beginning of 2020 and then it broke big I would say the summer of 2020 when many people wanted to educate themselves and the author had previously written a book called the warmth the warmth of other suns which is honestly one of the best books I've ever read and really reshaped how I think of history and the way the United States developed because the what that book does is it talks about the great migration as a wave of immigration or waves of immigration within the United States and almost treating Black Americans in the North, in the Midwest, and in the West as immigrants. And for me, that really changed my perspective in many ways and helped me make sense of a lot of things because I've always loved studying immigration. When I was a kid, my favorite thing to study. And so that was really cool. So I've been really looking forward to Origin. And the book itself to me wasn't as nearly as strong and not nearly as illuminating. So I was a little bit disappointed in the book. So I'm interested to see how the film fixes that. Oh, and I got the name of the book wrong. The book is called Cast the Origins of Discontent. So they took out Origin and made that the film title. A little catchier and a little less daunting for someone. <laughs> yeah, I think it's easier to get people who don't know what they're doing to go see something called Origin than to see something called Cast. A little better for the marketing. What else are you excited to see this weekend or soon? Eventually, I do want to see Renaissance, the Beyonce film, but I, it may become a streaming thing for me just because I don't get why they're not showing it like on a Tuesday, especially because December is such a chaotic month anyway. Um, but I'm looking forward to Maestro which I'll probably watch with my mom because it's over Christmas. I'm looking forward to Anyone But You because it's a rom-com with Glenn Powell and all. I think he's pretty charming. And I love family-oriented action flicks. And there's one on Apple Plus coming out with Mark Wahlberg in which he plays like an ex-assassin who's like reinvented his life. And then he has like three kids, but then they come find him. So the poster is like him with a baby to on his chest, like with a gun. And I was like, yeah, I am the target audience. Mm -hmm. How about you? What are you looking forward to? I will say most of my stuff's going to be next week. Yeah. We're going to see poor things today, but I know next week is going to be Wonka, which I know you're excited about. Not really. I like actually don't want to. I've heard better things about it, but the trailer is so horrendously terrible. I've been kind of wanting to just like hate watch it, go really late. I'm a little excited about Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, but I don't like almost anything he's done. But I don't like any of his DC stuff, and I was like, oh, we'll see what he's doing here. But this movie is like, he didn't get the rights to make a Star Wars movie, so he's making his own. Good for him. Laser swords, ships, explosions, and it's on Netflix, so I was like, you know what, let's just see what he's going to do. I'll be excited to watch it lower expectations and see how gritty it gets and then american fiction you gave me tickets to go see that i'm so excited to go see it jeffrey wright i love that's a movie that will either land or it will be off the mark i know it came out of toronto with excellent reviews but again now having watched the industry for as long as i have you do realize that like some things come out of sundance or toronto or venice even super hot and then the mood changes just enough or politically socially the larger conversation changes just enough that it doesn't land well even a few months later so that's one i'm like this could be outstanding i also don't know if it will age well i'm really excited well, thanks again for coming on. Um, 
We'll have to get a recap after Beyonce and more. And hear how your parents like watching Godzilla and Maestro. Perfect. Yeah, it's going to be great. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks again, Eleanor.